Hey everybody, my name is Tim Muirhead and I'll be your host. Welcome to Tone Benders. Today we are going to talk about The Sounds of Silence, the new film by Martin Scorsese. We're going to talk to Tom Fleischman, who mixed the film, and Phil Stockton, who is a supervising sound editor. Both of them are past Oscar winners, so Tom and Phil are big shots. They both work out of New York City. I'm going to properly introduce Phil in the intro to his interview, but uh, just to give a quick run into Tom Fleischman, he is uh, kind of a epic figure in the New York film scene. He was one of the main mixers at Sound One, and he's worked on many films by Martin Scorsese, as well as Spike Lee, Ang Lee, he often works in tandem with Mr. Stockton. So a heads up, I did these interviews before I could see the movie. They were done in November. The film was not out yet. In fact, the day I interviewed Tom Fleischman, it was literally the day after they finished the mix. So the film was not available for screeners when we did this interview. But when you get a chance to interview Oscar winners and icons of the industry, uh, you take those opportunities. In the next coming weeks and months, uh, the full interview with Tom Fleischman will be released, as well as with other people that I interviewed while I was in New York City. It was an amazing trip. But for right now, I'm just going to give you the piece of the interview, the four or five minutes that he talks specifically about the film Silence. Then we're going to hear a clip from the film and then go into the interview with Phil Stockton, where I'll introduce Phil's bona fides at that point. So first up, we're going to hear a little chunk of the trailer and then go into the interview with Tom Fleischman. So here we go. The Sounds of Silence. The Sound of Silence. Ferreira is lost to us. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. Father Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. This is in your hearts, then, both of you? Yes. Then I must trust God has put it down. The moment you set foot in that country, you step into high danger. I pray, but I'm lost. Am I just praying to silence? It's a very interesting film. It's very, very introspective. It's religious. It's got a lot to do with faith. It's it's very internalized in a lot of ways. You know, there's, there's voiceover, and there's no loud stuff. There's some ocean waves that are pretty loud in one scene. But uh, for the most part, it's quiet ambiences, a lot of insects and birds, and uh, and the dialogue obviously is the, the key thing. And the music is very unusual because it's, it's, uh, it's very sparse. There's not a lot of it. And what there is is, for the most part, almost part of the ambience of the film. So in that sense, from a sound point of view, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's not a melodic score. It's not an orchestral score. It's flutes, and uh, they have this cosmic beam that evidently the Grateful Dead invented at some point, which is just this great big railroad t rail. And, you know, if you hit it, it makes this incredible low-frequency noise. Uh, so there's some of that in there, um, drums and synthesizer stuff, and it's very kind of ethereal and... Uh, nothing hits you over the head except the story. You know, there's some things in the story that are uh, 
quite brutal and sad. And it's, uh, it's kind of a tragedy. We actually use silence, literally nothing. Not even a room tone, nothing. A uh, couple of places, actually. But uh, uh, when it's not completely silent, it's still not loud. It's, it's always, you know, it's 1640. You know, it's like there's not a lot happening. <laughs> not, you know, uh, the weapons are, you know, sticks and uh, swords, and uh, they don't make a lot of noise. Uh, Eugene Garrity was a sound designer, and he was also credited as a mixer. He helped me with the mix. He mixed all the effects. Uh, and he found authentic Japanese cicadas and Japanese birds. And uh, there's one scene where there was a, uh, they shot in Taiwan, and there's this bird that's indigenous to Taiwan that's in the track you know, runs through the whole scene, just won't shut up. So we use that, obviously. Uh, but, but yes, uh, it's, it's all very, very carefully planned. All, every, every single chirp of every cricket is thought about by Thelma and Marty. Um, it's very good. It's very good. And, and I got to say, the, the hardest challenge in the film, to me, was making the Japanese actors English intelligible because they were very heavily accented. And well, when I first saw it, I sort of got the gist of what was being said, you know. <clears throat> and they re had to redo some, you know, they did a fair amount of ADR for not only accent but for dialect because going from Nagasaki to Tokyo is like going from here to Biloxi, Mississippi. You know, the accents are completely different. Uh, and they had Japanese consultants who were advising them on, you know, this guy's not speaking properly. If he was in Nagasaki, he wouldn't be saying it that way. So it was a lot of that kind of thing. And uh, uh, that was a challenge. And, and But I got to say, the Japanese actors are fantastic. The performances are, are three or four of them are really brilliant. Uh, and, you know, the, the three American actors are pretty good, too. But I was really impressed with the Japanese. They're, that really made an impression on me. You see Jesus in Gethsemane and believe your trial is the same as his. Those five in the pit are suffering too, just like Jesus. But they don't have your pride. They would never compare themselves to Jesus. Do you have the right to make them suffer? I heard the cries of suffering in this same cell, and I acted. You excuse yourself! You excuse yourself! That is the spirit of darkness! <sighs> and what would you do for them? Pray? And get what in return? Only more suffering. The suffering only you can end. Oh. Not God! <laughs> I pray too, Rodriguez. It doesn't help. Today, our guest is Phil Stockton. Phil is an award-winning sound designer and dialogue editor. He won an Oscar for Hugo and was also nominated for Life of Pi. He's also got an Emmy in his back pocket for Boardwalk Empire. He is the co-owner of C5 Sound in New York City. As one of the city's busiest supervising sound editors for decades, and has a long-standing working relationship with some of the city's most respected directors, including the Coen brothers, Spike Lee, Ang Lee, and Martin Scorsese. Today we are going to talk about Mr. Stockton's recent work on Scorsese's new film, Silence, 
Phil, welcome to Tonebenders. Thanks for taking part. Thank you, Tim. So why don't you tell us a bit about how you got into the business to begin with? Sure. I came to New York City in the late 70s, kind of unsure of what I wanted to do, and was very interested in working in film. I eventually met someone who I helped on their own film and found out that he was an assistant editor in the union. And it just that was just amazing to me. And I started asking, how did, you, how did you do this? How did you get in? Editing was always something I was most interested in. I had made my own films, small films, and loved the whole post-production part. So he was working on a job and got me in as an apprentice in the picture department. And he left that job. It was a low-budget horror film. And when he left, I got promoted to assistant picture editor. Since it was so low-budget, I ended up working on the sound as well. And I was editing music cues and trying to come up with sound effects. I really had no idea what I was doing. I realized at a certain point that I was more interested in sound editing than I was in picture editing. I worked at this small company called August Films that was in the same building as the Technicolor Film Lab. They um, gave us a lot of work. I did everything from syncing up dailies to cutting negative to all kinds of stuff. Well, I got a very well-rounded education about uh, you know, pretty much all, all post-production. That was how I got started. At a certain point, I went freelance and met other people that were with similar backgrounds, sort of self-taught people, and uh, started to form relationships and kind of moved on from there. Would you say that you specialize in dialogue editing? I certainly do. I, um, you know, I supervise jobs, which can mean anything, but mm-hmm. in, in my case, it's basically putting the budget together, uh, hiring the crew. Someone once described the position of supervising sound editor as the person who gets the phone call from the director about anything and everything, um, usually spot the whole film with the director and sort of oversee the entire process. In addition to that, I usually try to do most or all of the dialogue editing on films, you know, as supervising sound editor, I nearly always attend the uh, final mix. Let's talk specifically about the new film, Silence. So the film takes place in the 1600s. You obviously can't have any uh, air traffic or distant motor traffic in the background. How did you get clean recordings for this show? Well, a lot of the recordings weren't particularly clean <laughs> um, when they came to me. We were pretty lucky for the most part. It was a very, very challenging job in general, because first of all, a lot of the Japanese actors really spoke no English, and they were just trying to phonetically sound out a lot of their dialogue, in some cases didn't really know what they were even saying. They just were saying the words, but they were incredibly gifted actors, and I I think they all did a great job, but a lot of their English was, was very difficult to understand. And we didn't really want to subtitle English at all, mm-hmm. uh, only Japanese, and there was some Portuguese and some a little bit of Chinese and Latin. So we already had enough subtitling to do, so we just did our best to try to get uh, clarity as much as possible, which sometimes involved just replacing syllables, words, um, putting T's and S's where there weren't any. There were at least three or four incredibly difficult scenes. One had a motorcycle, one there was a jet, 
And these were very delicate performances, and on a Scorsese film, it's all about performance. It begins and ends with that. And I don't think uh, anyone who ever worked with him would be at liberty to say, well, this really needs to be 80 yard. You know, we, we can't understand this. It's just, it's all about getting the, the correct performance. So my job in general were on Scorsese films is to take what I'm given and just do my very best to improve it. And uh, luckily, one thing that the uh, production sound had going for it was there were multiple takes with everything, so I could sort of scavenge syllables and and things for accent. But um, there were also multiple mics used, so um, I found generally, like, if I could use the radio mics, a lot of times there was a lot less of whether it was the you know the jet or the motorcycle. There was also generator noises, camera noises, and you know some of the locations were were difficult. There was one, and it was a major location. It's prison where the men being held for quite a bit of running time in the movie, and it was pretty close to a, a highway. So that was challenging. You know, we were constantly just dipping out and, and trying to fill in backgrounds and reduce the highway as, as much as possible. And another issue was the film was actually shot entirely in Taiwan. And there's a particular bird that I learned about in spades on this movie, <laughs> which is called, uh, it's called a Taiwanese barbette. And this bird is very vocal. It's in a couple of the different locations over dialogue. I mean, there's just really no way at all to get rid of it. They just decided to sort of embrace this bird. So rather than try to hide it, we just sort of filled it out so, and made it consistent. It almost becomes a character in the film <laughs> in a couple of scenes. And I'm sure anyone listening would think that it was uh, a sound effect that was added rather than something that we were sort of stuck with in a way on production. But it's a cool sound. I'm glad that that it's in there. I mean, it would have been a nightmare to try to get rid of it. Whole long scenes with very difficult performances would have had to have been completely redone. And in terms of authenticity, I think we all try to be as authentic as possible. And then there's those times when you just have to accept things that aren't particularly authentic. And I can't imagine there are a whole lot of people who would notice it. I actually went to the premiere and Ang Lee was there who comes from Taiwan, and I mentioned the bird ahead of time, and he had never heard of it and didn't notice it in the film. So as a you know Taiwanese resident, if he didn't notice, then hopefully nobody else did either. Well, now that you've pointed it out to all our listeners, we'll be listening very intently for this bird. So how do you come up with the idea, the concepts of what the ambiences sound like for a time and a place that we obviously don't have any recordings of? Well, in this case, the assistant editor... Uh, so I'm Scott Brock did a tremendous amount of work ahead of time. And the way Mr. Scorsese and his editor tend to work, they have a lot of screening and they're constantly building um, the sound as well as the picture. Okay. And the vast majority of the time they're asking us for things and getting things from us. Sometimes we'll actually cut things and give it to them. Other times we'll just give them a few sound effects and backgrounds that they want. Or a lot of times with Marty, he'll just describe a feeling that he wants to get out of it. Like, you know, I want this to be very stark or I want this to be eerie. Sometimes he'll cite older movies that inspired by and say, you know, watch this scene in this movie and that's the feeling I want to get. Hmm. So 
sometimes we're sort of shooting in the dark with exactly what we want or what he wants from me. Uh, other times, you know, it, it can be pretty specific, but it's a long process. They start asking for sound effects and backgrounds and even fully as they're editing. You know, sometimes even they're, they're not even done with the uh, first assembly yet, but they're asking for things for scenes that, they, that they're working on in the moment. Mm-hmm. This can take place over, in this case, a period of a couple of years. It was really a process of building, of them asking for things, leading to things, and then giving us a tent mix that they tend to do themselves. That would be sort of a, a blueprint for us to take what they've already done and have that available, but since it's mostly our material anyway, and then to just keep improving it and adding to it. And I think on some of Marty's films, we always sort of have carte blanche to do, to try different things. He's, he's always interested in hearing anything that we've done. But on this one specifically, there was a bit less of that because this is a film that he was trying to make for 25 years. By the time he made it, he knew pretty much exactly what he wanted. And, you know, one of the challenges in this film was that he didn't really want a lot of sound design. He wanted to feel sort of more organic, more natural, and within a certain scene, I mean, normally one tries to do particularly dialogue editing, but backgrounds as well, is to try to uh, smooth everything out to make uh, in-between cuts to make it sort of unnoticeable. Mm-hmm. And Marty really wanted us to have very sharp cuts within the same location, the same time period, just incredibly different just from, from cut to cut. Wow. That's sort of like old movies used to be because maybe they didn't have a choice. Yeah. It's very effective in this movie. I, I'm sure anybody who's into sound will notice it. Probably the average viewer wouldn't really be aware unless it was pointed out to them. It actually works really well. One example is there's a scene when the two priests first arrive in the village in Japan and they're walking through the village and it's very dark and it's almost completely silent. There's very little background going on. I don't think we used any foley in that scene. They're just sort of seen at a distance going through the town. And then it cuts to an interior of them coming into the door in a hut, and suddenly there's really loud insects just blasting, okay. as if all the insects are inside and they're <laughs> rather than outside. So it's Unusual, you know, it's not necessarily realistic, but it, it achieves the effect that Marty wanted. You mentioned how quiet that scene was. Silence actually is more than just the title. It's a, a literal thing within the film, which would be, uh, I guess, something that would make the dialogue edit a lot more difficult if you can't hide it behind a big score and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of there are a couple of scenes where they are completely silent. All of the dialogue, all of the production, all of the sound effects, fully everything is stripped out, and it's just played with total silence. It is literal, and it definitely is effective. Now, a lot of time, silence is used in films to make the loud parts pop more. Are there any big moments in the film where suddenly there is a loud noise? Yeah, there's several instances of that. There's the scene where Mokichi, one of the Japanese villagers, is on the cross in the ocean, and the the ocean is just pounding him, and it's pretty loud. It's a natural effect, and it's made up of of several other things, uh, wave crashes and booms, and you know there's subwoofer added, and it's pretty beefy. And then there's a couple of places where music 
which is very sparse in this film. A lot of the music is sort of atmospheric, and one wouldn't really know whether it was music or a sound effect, which is also very anti-Scorsese. He's, he's known for his scores and or, uh, you know, use of music. Source uh, music, yes. Yeah, source. In this case, it's very, very sparse, but there's a couple places where it catch you off guard. And, and there's places where there's a scene where a little cup of water is smashed on a rock and you know, kind of jolting. So yeah, there are some loud things in the movie, but for the most part, it's about the performances and the, the moods and, and the feelings. So I'm wondering if we can switch gears for a moment here and talk uh, about your role as the supervisor on this. You mentioned how you're working on the film kind of as they're cutting it. I'm assuming that near the end, there's a bit more of a crunch, but how do you schedule bits and pieces here and there? That's a very good question. Fortunately for myself and my crew, I think we're all quite accustomed to coming on and off. Especially, like, this film was not a big-budget film, uh, comparatively. It really wasn't until the very end that we did any overtime or worked any weekends or worked any long hours. The downside is, maybe, is that uh, it, it does get spread out, and if there's nothing else much going on, things are sort of few and far between sometimes. But the good news is, is that it allows us to be able to work on, on other projects particularly for the first part. And then the, the way it usually works is that we start supplying them with things as asked. We just sort of keep track of our hours. And then at a certain point, in this case, I think it was about eight weeks before the dialogue premix began, we come on full time and tear into it. That's when we kind of finish everything. We conform whatever needs to be conformed, finish adding things. Uh, the majority of the dialogue is cut during that period. And then we knew on this film, as always, that they're going to continue to edit the film throughout the whole mix and the whole process. So from that eight-week period before the mixing starts to the end, we're just on. We're there and employed through the whole thing. So that's kind of how we work it. Mm-hmm. I guess in other films, like uh, we mentioned in the intro that you did, Hugo, mm-hmm. there's tons of special effects being flown in at the last minute, I would imagine, where this film, uh, was there the need for as many conforms and such? Yeah, there were. There really was. There were a lot more visual effects than meet the eye, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> um, there was a lot of more shortening scenes, like shortening within a shot by cutting mm-hmm. a bit out and then you know, morphing it to contiguous. I think there were several hundred visual effects shot of one type or another, but they affect us maybe less on a film like this than certainly than on Hugo. In this case, the editing, it's sort of a work in progress right down to the very end. They're still screening the film. They're still getting feedback, making decisions. They tend to use whatever time they're given, you know, right up till the very last minute. So you mentioned that part of your role as the supervising sound editor is crewing up the film. It seems like Mr. Scorsese is, uh, I don't know if loyal or he seems to work with the same people film after film. So is there much decision making you have to be doing on this film or was it kind of a given who is going to be doing what? It's always Eugene, Garrity and myself. I mean, that, that's sort of a given. Um, we sort of, we, you know, we work together on all the Scorsese films and all the Ang Lee films in particular, Eugene Garrity, who's. I call him my partner. He's not like a co-owner of C5, but, you know, we co-supervise. We've actually shared the, the supervising credit on the last several Scorsese films. 
previous to that, I usually took the supervisor credit and he took the sound design credit, but we, you know, we, we consider ourselves sort of co, co-supervisors. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of the crew, uh, yeah, we have, we have sort of a pool of people that we use that have been with us for a very long time. And interestingly, on this particular film, my assistant that I had worked with for probably 25 years wasn't available anymore. And I worked with someone I'd never worked with before, who is a younger guy who's very pro tool savvy, which was, was very helpful. And that was a bit of a challenge for him and for, for me. And a lot of the other people are sort of veterans of other Scorsese films and sort of know the drill. Why do you think directors keep coming back to work with you? What are you providing that they're coming back for? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, you did mention Marty Scorsese is someone who's loyal, and that is the word. He's definitely loyal. I think he knows that uh, he's going to get what he wants from us. You know, we have this sort of relationship where there's a lot of shorthand. He can say in very few words what he wants and and knows that we'll, we'll be able to get it for him. And, you know, eventually, as with working with anyone, you know, you spend hours and hours together in the mixed age and you have a relationship. You become friends to a degree. I don't think we're going to be driving cross-country together anytime soon. But we, uh, no, we, have, we, have, we actually have a great relationship. And I think a lot of why people return uh, is based on relationships. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been really fascinating, and uh, I want everyone to go out and see the movie so they know what you're talking about. So thank you very much for your time, and uh, have a great day. Yeah, you too, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.